these countdowns are so silly too because they always increase my nerves and uh, i haven't recorded for a little while and colin you're the first guest that i have recorded with with video on so i've been doing these audio only recordings on my Substack for like 10 or 12 months so it is cool to add this dimension to the conversation, especially because um, I'm really excited to host you. And I think there's a lot that we'll be able to talk about in a short period of time. Uh, some of our conversation will enter territory that people automatically take as contentious. But I actually think that you and I, by having this conversation or me by hosting you in this conversation, are just extending a discussion that has been happening in some societies for tens of years, some societies, maybe hundreds of years, some societies for thousands of years. So I, I do think that uh, some of what we'll discuss today uh, is something that we should be able to discuss in public, uh, in front of other people, uh, and even in front of an audience on social media, uh, at academic institutions, uh, you know, anywhere that we want, honestly, because uh, I think this is an important conversation. But Colin, uh, just so you know, because we haven't had a chance to interact like this, uh, I've been following your your writing, uh, a lot of the content that you post, videos that you do. Um, I even watched some of your discussion with uh, Joe Rogan, which I believe was 2020. 2021? Yeah, 21. I think it was like June or July last year, I think. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. And I, um, I, even though I don't know you, I obviously know there's a lot more to you than the kind of public face, uh, the persona or the way that people may interpret some mm -hmm. of the knowledge that you bring to the table, uh, without a doubt. Uh, but I guess like j just to kind of uh, get the conversation going, because I'm sure everyone's listening intently now. Just to kind of get the conversation go going. Um, so, what were you doing before you decided to pursue your PhD at UC Santa Barbara, and uh, how did you even like end up in the academic world? Yeah, so it was kind of a weird path to that. So, I, I initially, so I when I graduated from high school. I was sort of aimless. I didn't do well in high school, so I didn't even like apply to any big colleges. I, I went to a community college as a just a business major, and I just was kind of aimless. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was doing really poor in all my business classes. I actually ended up uh, flunking out of all my, my business classes. I just sort of didn't go. Uh, I ended up leaving community college and pursued... Um, well, so I, I got... I was on academic probation for several years and I actually got kicked out of community college for like failing all my classes. Oh, no. <laughs> and then, then I was a real estate agent for a couple of years and I got my license in 2008, which is when the housing bubble burst. And so no one wanted to buy a house or sell their house with a brand new, a new newly minted agent who had no experience actually selling any houses. And plus the market was, was terrible for, for buyers. Um, so the whole real estate thing kind of just collapsed is the second I was minted as an agent. And but during that time, I was reading a lot of popular science stuff. I would always kind of was interested in science when I was a kid, but I kind of lost that in high school a little bit. But I was really into like the whole new atheist movement. I was reading a lot of Richard Dawkins, um, Stephen Jay Gould, just all these evolutionary biologists. And so I was sort of in a weird spot where it's like, what am I going to do with my life? Uh, I worked at like a BMW dealership for a little bit. I was doing real estate and I was sort of aimless. And I just decided I needed to go back to school somehow and, and pursue evolutionary biology. Cause that's like all I was reading about at that time. Cause I was debating creationists and intelligence and design people. So, uh, I just sort of went all in on that. Cause it was what I was doing in all my, my free time. And I just decided that that's, that was a big passion. Might as well just go, uh, all in on that. So, I went back, I had to sort of like beg them to let me back into community college because I I was kicked out. And so I was back in on academic probation. Um, so I had to retake all these classes that I failed to like turn my Fs into better grades. And then um, I then transferred to UC Davis as an evolutionary biology major. 
graduated there. I worked in industry at Bayer Crop Science for a year, and then I started my PhD program, started at the University of Pittsburgh, and then my lab moved to the University of California, Santa Barbara. Um, then I, when I graduated there in 2018, I started a postdoc at Penn State, and I did that for two years before I uh, sort of got fed up with a lot of the sort of, I guess what I talk about now, a lot of the sex and gender stuff that I just sort of pivoted to randomly. So that's sure. what I was doing beforehand. That's <laughs> kind of so fascinating. Thing. Oh, I love that. I, um, I'm sure when I, I have plans to pursue a PhD in the future, I'm sure when I describe it, it will sound very similar to what you described. So that that's very cool. I have something to look forward yeah. to clearly. Yeah. I was, yeah, uh, I was also, I was an older student. I mean, I, I took many years off between graduating high school and going to college too. So, um, yep. Yeah, I was I was in my late twenties when I was starting grad school. So, um, wow. Yeah, yeah I'm uh, I'm still doing undergrad, and I'm 33. So I, yeah. I stepped Never into the late. community. It's <laughs> not though. That's actually true. Yeah. I I didn't believe that when I was looking at my options, but I see it now. Yeah. You, you said so, you're going to community college. No, I actually transferred oh. to the University of Colorado Boulder about 12 months okay. ago. Nice. And uh, so I was at the community college. I had a business major, which I thought was a joke. It was really <laughs> excruciating to have like a technology background and then step into community college style business classes. Yeah. Uh, I, I talked yeah. to some friends. They're like liberal arts, bro. I'm like, all right. So I switched <laughs> to political science. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I actually really enjoy it, even though I can't have the same discourse I would like in the classroom, but it's fun. Uh, yeah. So then, so you got into evolutionary biology and like, what were you picking up on? Uh, like, what were some things that excited you about the studies? Like, you know, you mentioned some topics earlier where you were having discussions about evolutionary biology in comparison to other subjects early on. So, so like, could you say more about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was really into the whole um, evolution versus creationism, intelligent design stuff. Uh, so that's what really got me just reading all about evolutionary biology, just from paleontology to ecology. Um, I got into Richard Dawkins, and I was really interested in sort of the behavioral sciences, like the, the behavioral ecology. Uh, so when I was at UC Davis, I ended up taking, uh, took a behavioral ecology class and then an animal behavior class. And that's what really cemented my interest in studying sort of this evolutionary behavioral ecology, just as like um, the, the the adaptations that organisms have, the behavioral adaptations to their environment and things like that. And then I was really interested in social behavior as well. Uh, and so what I did in grad school, I studied collective personalities in insects and arachnids. So social spiders, wasps, ants, um, th those are the main systems that I worked with. Uh, and basically it's, it was just, you know, we study, we would get, so my PhD was on spiders specifically, but I studied a lot on wasps as well on the side. And we would take these big, or these spider colonies in South Africa. And, you know, we can, they have maybe a hundred spiders in them and we could take, we could take each spider out and identify their personalities. And we could like create new spider societies from those individuals and say like, this is, we make, we can make artificial colonies of like you know, 100% really bold and aggressive individuals, and then other colonies are really shy and docile ones, and then we can see how they perform at different things, sort of the emergent colony-level behavior that comes out based on the individual personality differences within the colony. So it's, it's really fun, and it also is a really good system because you can do experiments really, really quickly. In just, like, a couple of weeks, you can get, like, a really big, compelling data set and publish things quickly. So from a grad student point of view... You know, it's it's good because you can be really productive. You know, and it's not like studying like whale population genetics or anything where you have to wait like, sure. you know, decades before you get data back. So it was it was fun. I really enjoyed all the social behavior. Um, yeah, that was definitely my my biggest interest. Is, and that's what I did. That's so interesting. It's so different from kind of like where I study. Like even one of my classes right now is called Revolution and Political Violence. That's and, interesting. Uh, but that's kind of a social behavior, though, too. That's but the only thing is you can't really do the experiments with people because you can't like no. make the different experiments. Battle and yeah, it's, it's ethical. Yeah, you can only, 
<laughs> you know, certainly there is. Yeah. So yeah. how did, so you know, sex and gender is like, uh, is a conversation that's even taking place in the office. So like in the corporate environment, sex and gender is a conversation that happens multiple times a week or multiple times a month in a lot of corporate environments. And then it's a huge deal on these university campuses, even hearing the way the students are interacting, you know, because most of them in my classes are in their uh, late teens, early 20s, uh, and then meeting professors that are our age, or maybe even a little bit older, or a lot older, uh, kind of respond to these changing dynamics on not just like sex and gender, but race, economics, uh, just society in general, right? There's a lot of questions that people are asking. Um, so I, I wanted to kind of like dig into like your views on sex and gender, however that looks. And then keep in mind, like for anybody that is listening, I'm not taking a stance because uh, I see some benefits to some of these movements that have taken place as somebody that looks at uh, political science, political dissent, liberation, uh, you know, we've all had to look at multiple waves of feminism in different ways. So I'm not taking a stance, but I do think that you, Colin, have some valuable information to kind of contrast a lot of the popular discourse that's happening. So, so like, how did you start to form your positions on sex, gender, you know, maybe some of the other things that are, uh, that come to mind for you these days? It was a it was a pretty slow burn actually. Like I, I got sort of inklings that there were these discussions happening when I was an undergrad, um, but they weren't really really dominant in the in the narratives. You know, I, there was like no indication of any of this current discourse on sex and gender when I was an undergrad. It just I it didn't encounter it whatsoever during undergrad. None of my classes had any of that stuff, um, and I guess a lot of what I did for, you know, as a, as an academic, you know, I studied animal behavior. And so one of the biggest differences in animal behavior is the difference between males and females. Um, you know, this, so we had to learn like, you know, this, it addresses really fundamental questions about what is a male, what is a female. And it all, all comes back to, you know, the type of gamete or sex cell that an individual produces the size of them specifically. So like males are the sex that has their reproductive system organized around producing small motile gametes sperm and females have the large you know the the egg um and that really has a lot of downstream consequences for just the strategies that individual organisms take in their environment and whether or not they're you know their their mating strategies how aggressive they are there's just it, it touches on everything and so i heard a lot of my colleagues talking about sex at first and there was this sort of early on thing that a lot of i guess what I would now look at is sort of like the social justice type people where they asked us to make this distinction between sex and gender. It was, you know, we can talk about males and females, but then the words man and woman, they wanted to separate those out as being identities um, where male and female referred to sex. And so at first, you know, it's like, okay, as a biologist, as long as we can make sure the male and female is a really distinct concept in biology you know, maybe we can open up these other words to describe something about, like, a subjective experience or something. So I was actually on board with that early on, that that divide. And I only really started making waves when that sort of barrier between sex and gender became, you know, started to be eroded, and then it really just became a flagrant violation of that boundary completely. So I'd have friends that were posting on social media stuff saying that, oh, there's actually five sexes. Um, or that, that sex is a spectrum. And I thought maybe they're talking about gender identity and expression and all these things, but like, no, they actually were talking about sex now. <laughs> and so uh, early on, I was just like trying to correct the biology. I would say like, oh, I, people are confused about what male and females are. Here's here's what it means. This here's trying to correct the record. Thinking I would get like an academic response back because a lot of the people who were making these arguments were were colleagues. They were PhD students in anthropology and even within my own field of uh, evolutionary biology. And I wasn't met back with these academic arguments about what sexes are. It was just like, you're a, you're a bigot, you're a transphobe, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so that was really shocking. And so I kind of just stopped talking about it because 
as you move on in academia, like your 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 connections, the people you're around with, it, it's it's a really small community of behavioral ecologists. You go, you have your cohort in grad school, you have your lab. You don't want to rock the boat in your in your in your field because you know you need to rely on these relationships for promotion and moving on in your career. So I, I really kept quiet for a long time, but these were the conversations, I guess, that really started me thinking there's something going on here um, about this sex and gender debate. And it got to a point, I think it was the James Lindsay, Holland Pluckrose, Peter Bogosian, they did like that little sting operation on the a lot of the humanities, a lot of the gender journals. Yeah. Nature was publishing articles about, you know, sex is a spectrum. Scientific American was also putting out a bunch of stuff. And it just like... All the stuff that was like fringe conversations on my Facebook, stuff that was happening on Tumblr, was all of a sudden just like in nature, in like the most prestigious scientific journal in the mm. world. And so that's what really just sort of like made me stand up from my lab bench and like really start pushing back on this stuff. Because uh, it became impossible for me to think about my next paper on wasp and spider behavior when half my students that are in the classroom are confused about what males and females are it seemed like i needed to like repair the bridge behind me first before i like expand the the horizon of of knowledge so um yeah that's what kind of what i've been doing <laughs> ever since and i've so, been trying to correct that record and so on the like most extreme part of the spectrum what you've witnessed or what some of us may have witnessed it's like a complete a desire to completely dissolve any delineation between male and female or how, how would you describe does that dissolution yeah. sound like a i mean that's that's accurate there's people who will take positions all along that some some people will just say male and female are complete social constructs these are just arbitrary designations uh we someone powerful in the past decided to draw a line here because they wanted to oppress a certain group of people or something and you know we're going to push back against that power dynamic and we're going to redraw the line or insist that no lines should should or can be drawn because drawing a line anywhere is inherently oppressive. Like these are, that's sort of the extreme version, which is, you know, it's extreme, but it's actually quite prevalent um, and influential on sort of yeah. the national discourse. But then there's other people who sort of have varying degrees of, of sex and, and gender, I suppose, that, um, you know, I, I can agree with some parts of their argument about sort of sure. the social construct of gender as in like social roles and expectations that are placed on males and females in society, sort of stereotypes of masculinity or femininity that people are sort of encouraged to, to, to adhere to that type of thing. So there's, there's some like feminist analysis that I can sort of understand the usefulness of, but just as a biologist, it became like when people are just saying sex is a spectrum, here's an intersex person Therefore, male and female are arbitrary. We can't even like tell the difference. They're just there's varying degrees of maleness and femaleness, but no one's truly male and female. It's just sort of like this uh, this statistical concept or something. And that's to me that's that's just completely nuts. Um, and then they use that to like forward other arguments, like you know intersex people exist, sex is a spectrum. Therefore, someone who's unambiguously male can then identify as a female. We can't tell them otherwise uh mm. those are the types of things that i guess i i really just push back against out of just for the sake of of reality and you know it's a fundamental aspect of our of our species you know our biological sex so you can really deny those realities at at your own peril because they're they're pretty fundamental you know when you when you deny really fundamental aspects about your biology um yeah a lot of a lot of bad things pop up a lot of crazy things will pop up <laughs> that's what i think it's we're dealing with it is, and like the denial of reality is like how I talk about political movements. Because I think in in a lot of ways, uh, you know, if there is a group who is who who's perceived some type of uh, uh, repression, oppression, uh, marginalization, and uh, they want they're looking for a legitimate channel to air those grievances out. You know, they'll create these political instruments or rhetorical ways of talking about things that may 
be communicated differently until that movement emerges. And I think those movements are designed to deny reality in a lot of ways. But what do you think? So like, you know, I think the implications of not acknowledging sex differences uh, would be very destabilizing for um, every society in the world. Uh, but what do you think, like from a social perspective, if we're, you know, if we're, if we know that there's like a specific, uh, group of people that maybe are having a different personal experience than you or, or I, or just on average, the experience people have when they think about their identity, uh, sexually or, uh, biologically. Maybe, maybe there's like a nuanced perspective there and uh, the structure of society, most societies, especially more conservative societies, is not designed to accommodate that kind of nuanced sexual uh, experience or desire or, uh, you know, maybe people will try to make a natural argument for some of these dynamics. But where do you stand in terms of like, you know, does society need to make more room or become a little bit more liberal sexually while still maintaining some clear definitions on uh, like male and female distinctions? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we need to be able to identify just like the, the base ground truth of, of what males and females are. But there, there's this tendency for people to think that if, if I say something like males and females differ in their personality traits or on agreeableness or on neuroticism, you know, they'll say, or, you know, aggressiveness or something like that. Like males are more aggressive. Um, people take that as to be like this categorical claim that like all males are more aggressive than all females. And everyone will just be like, I know a really aggressive female. So that's not true. Or I know a really docile male. And that's so that just gets rid of that whole theory. You know, we can, there's this tendency to not look at these differences as you know, while the average differences are true, there's still like so much overlap between both males and females on all of these traits. Any any personality trait you can point to, almost any any physical trait, height you can point to, you know, there's there's going to be really tall females, there's going to be really short males, there's going to be really aggressive females and docile males. You know, we're not making claims that are saying this is the way nature should be, or we're not therefore you know when a when a male acts out aggressively and abuses his girlfriend or something. We're not saying that's good or anything like that. We're just saying that, you know, males tend to be more aggressive. You can still punish people based on their levels of aggression, what they, in their actions, you know, it's not justifying these outcomes in society, you know, males and females differ in their, this sort of preferences, uh, the preferences and like their, their jobs that they want to pursue. You know, there's like a tendency for things versus people type careers, and that's just, you know, that's just a, a plain fact of, of biology. That doesn't mean you have, don't have males that are really interested in people. That doesn't mean you have females that aren't really have systemizing lines who are going to be really great theoretical physicists or engineers. You get them. You just shouldn't really stand back and look at these disparities and think that because that disparity exists, therefore there's some discrimination going on. Like, as long as there's no actual barrier to a woman becoming an engineer, uh, because they're a female, then that's that's good. That's fine. We should let males and females sort of naturally be driven or guided to their own unique proclivities on an individual basis. Um, there's this tendency to, to do that, to stand back, though, and say, there's all these disparities. Why aren't there enough, you know, f females who are trying to become engineers you know, this is all then looked back on and said, look, this is a really sexist field. That's the only explanation for these differences. Sure. Um, you know, we need to push back against active discrimination when you see it. But just because there's that disparity doesn't mean like that's not like, you know, de facto evidence of discrimination. Um, and that's I think what we're, we're in this like this cycle where that's really just happening. We're, we're looking at all these disparities and using that as de facto evidence that there's sexism or racism or whatever going on in society. Um, whereas a scientist, I would just sort of explain the basic facts of human nature and why we might expect these patterns to emerge and not give them any sort of value, not saying they're good or bad. It's just sort of the way, the way it is. Um, 
Well, that makes sense. <laughs> no, I get that. And then, so like, once we have, like, once we have the observed reality that we can quantify, it's measurable, we can visualize it. Uh, it seems like, it seems like, like there, like discrimination, like I was telling you, I'm taking this class on revolution and political violence, and I haven't anchored in on this fully, but there is a huge argument amongst political scientists as to whether or not discrimination is the mechanism that is uh, driving political violence. Like if, if that's actually what is happening when uh, uh, states and citizens uh, interact with each other uh, in civil conflict or interstate war, but uh but once we have the observed reality you know like uh and again there's academics that would shit on us for being two men for having this conversation but i actually think we should be able to have this conversation we should be able to participate in this dialogue because it is important because it affects all of us in different ways but once we have the observed reality say uh i'm a woman i can see regardless of uh, occupation choices or education, uh, I can see, you know, on average, I'm being paid 10%, for example, less than uh, men uh, in a similar role or in the same role. Uh, you know, there, there's lots of ways that we can rationalize that in the data. We don't have to default to normativity or, you know, uh, and we can see, okay, this is, a reality, right? This is how people are expressing themselves. Uh, and here's what it looks like when we measure it quantitatively. Uh, but it, it, it seems also natural that people would potentially start to become frustrated, uh, you know, either as uh, more knowledge emerges or uh, as the society shifts. Uh, like, what do you say to like, people that may have, like, they may look at what you've been able to demonstrate in terms of data. Uh, what do you say to the ones that like are making these arguments, uh, you know, for gender equality or parody or, you know, cause I mean, that's, you know, so, some of the arguments I think are fair, but then again, like a group that feels that, you know, the state or the society is in opposition to its interest, you know, I feel like that's where you're going to see a denial of reality. I don't know if that is a constant denial, or maybe you're advocating for what, you know, in politics, we'd call as like a more conservative approach to, you know, opening doors up maybe down the road or, or, or changing the way that we look at these things. Yeah, I guess I, I just favor moving away from this sort of group level analysis of, of things, because there are so many reasons you might have disparities between any, any two groups. There's like an infinite number of reasons that could be causing that disparity. Only one of them could be discrimination. Um, but we tend to just sort of default to that as the explanation. Um, you know, if there's any evidence which there could be for certain for certain disparities that like someone's being discriminated against because of their race or because of their sex or because of their gender identity or something then like I'm all for like taking that to the courts and getting your justice like if you're being discriminated against as an individual because of some immutable trait that you have like that is unacceptable to me like that needs to be rooted out of society completely but we can't really say that that is occurring purely by just like looking at total group averages and just saying like, oh, you know, white people make this much relative to this other group, you know, and you're not even controlling for things like the age structure of the population, like, because we know that wealth is correlated with age over time, for instance. So you really need to do all those sort of multivariate calculations and controls to find out like, is this a real disparity? And then you know, there's also like that cultural aspect. There could be a reason why we have disparities. Um, but I would, I would just bring it back to sort of the individual level of analysis. Like if you are being discriminated against as an individual because of any immutable trait, that is just, again, completely unacceptable and you need to get justice for that. And I hope you sue the hell out of people and that you win. Um, but again, like 
the way we tend to diagnose discrimination right now is really just this incredibly sloppy univariate sort of just add up all the individuals of this group and all the individuals of this, take the average, compare them. If there's a disparity, that's de facto evidence that there's active discrimination going on. Um, I just think that's just like an incredibly sloppy way to, to go about that. Um, but, you know, at an individual level, yeah, we need to make sure that people aren't being discriminated against. So, um, yeah, I, th I think discrimination needs to be, that needs to be the thing that's demonstrated, like, actively before we can actually decide to make any sort of changes to remedy any disparity. Not all disparities need to be remedied. Sometimes they're there just for r random historical reasons. Um, yeah, I think that's 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 basically how I look at a lot of these discourses that are going on right now. Well, and do you think like, um, like we have, like, I mean, on the university applications, there are multiple genders that are being listed. I believe um, my university, uh, last year when I saw the application, uh, there were somewhere around 10. And then there was a box where you could just claim whatever. And by the way, they just added mixed race on the whole racial thing. And I've been, I was, you know, yeah born this way they just added which i think even having to identify racially is a little silly in certain ways but i understand uh that to some degree uh but do you think that like intersectionality has like made everyone believe to some degree that like white people are elite and everyone else is being marginalized and then you have all these different interactions of marginalization that are coming together and maybe that's also influenced the way that people are talking about gender and sex yeah yeah for, for sure i mean i think there's like a nugget of truth to the whole intersectionality thing about you know there's different experiences of being discriminated against as being a black and a woman, you know, there's, they can stack to some degrees. And uh, yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting idea and it's got some truth to it, but it's really sort of just morphed into becoming like this hierarchy of who gets to be listened to, um, who gets to speak on certain things, who has, you know, a more valid uh, version of truth. You know, it's, it's turning into like this standpoint epistemology type thing where, you know, you just calculate all these intersections of oppression you have based on immutable characteristics. Um, and a lot of times classes almost left out of this in, to many, in, to many degrees. Um, and then they're using this as a way to just sort of, you know, dominate the conversation any way they want to. You know, I would just, again, go back to the, the individual level of analysis there. Like, yeah, you can be a white guy, but you could still like have parents that were methods, you could be extremely poor, you could have all these health problems. And, you know, there's so many individual ways that people vary in how, you know, oppressed they are. Like it's, you really can't glean, I think, too much information out of, uh, from an individual. If you, if you're just checking boxes of immutable characteristics, I mean, people are so much more complex than, than that. And I just don't think we should be using sort of like these group averages to then, apply those to an individual and, and try to say that you're this person from this group that has these sort of group averages. Therefore we're going to use you as a representation for, for all these groups. Like you, you're going to own all those traits of your, of your groups. You know, the, the individual just gets lost out of that entire situation. Um, and it, it kind of contributes, I think, to a, a, a new dehumanizing narrative where people will then use these characteristics as a way where they can sort of do a reverse I don't like reverse discrimination or reverse racism. I think it's just, they use it as a justification to be incredibly prejudiced to other people. And I just think we need to move away from that whole idea whatsoever and just and just see people as unique individuals who are need to be treated on an individual basis. You know, some people need help. Uh, some people are more oppressed for various reasons that all needs to be taken into consideration. Um, but if everyone's voice really matters in a conversation, you can't just silence someone because you're a white guy or you're whatever. It's, it's, yeah. I think it's just incredibly toxic to all discourse in that we're doing right now. Really. I agree. And I, I think the 
discourse politically uh, has become more anti-white and more anti-patriarchy. Speaking for myself and uh, having to play both sides of the fence my whole life, well, on other sides too, because people don't even think I'm black. They think I'm a Middle Eastern or East Asian. But uh, I understand the practical application of anti-whiteness. So actually like understand why groups would propose uh, or construct anti-white narratives as a political instrument, but then also understand anti-patriarchy narratives and kinds of ideas, like uh, how they could play out politically. But, But I think the reality is that broadly, patriarchy is a pretty stable way that societies have governed themselves. I'm not saying that we don't need more women. I, me personally, would love to see more women in higher parts of leadership, more women uh, as heads of state or uh, top decision makers and economics and some of these, uh, you know, finance. I want to see that. But I think that um, we can't even have rational discussions about patriarchy in most circles because uh, uh, you know, people are finding new ways to integrate uh, mm, these thoughts, fears, or realities of discrimination into their identities. I feel like the young people are like truly learning, like, oh, I can have this identity that you know we already come with all these injuries from like how we grow up and who we grow up around and how we perceive ourselves and all the things that we have to work out through therapy and stuff. But now we have these additional layers where they're like giving people this language to describe uh, the way society is injuring them, which again may be real, may be perceived, but like, like what do you think is the push here? Is this like when we're breaking up sex and gender is this like a part of anti-patriarchy style discourse do do you see any benefits to that discourse and then what happens if it's not just white women opposing the patriarchy what happens if it are new styles of sex and gender combinations that you know we have language for now apparently yeah um Good question. You know, I, I just see a lot of the the discourse. I mean, especially around sex and gender. I do think there are good arguments for you know. So let me reframe this. Like, there's a lot of people who will use these big words like patriarchy, and I see that as a similar word that people they might use like something like a systemic racism. I see those as kind of equivalent terms, but used in a different yeah. different area. Um, and I, th- I think they're in a way they're too easy to just like say patriarchy as like this this cloud of of oppression that sort of just we're all swimming through. Um, I, I would I would say that we need to be able to you know if it's there if there is this sort of overriding like patriarchy of, of men dominating society you know that needs to be like demonstrated in, in an individual way where you can test for it and say like this is. This is the effect. This is the effect of patriarchy, um, because it's 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 billed as being this incredibly influential thing, and I'm open for it to to being there. But if it's so influential, then it should have effects, and effects can be measured, etc. Um, you know, just because there are more men in positions of power, I, I wouldn't necessarily want to say default and call that patriarchy, because I mean, a lot of these people are being voted in by by women too, who are, you know, they have agency, they vote for the candidate that has their values. Um, and if they wanted to just vote women in, like they, they could do that too, if they wanted to. Um, yeah, I, I, and I see the same thing with a lot of the systemic racism arguments where it's, it's just such an easy thing to just point to and say, you know, again, it usually comes down to like these group disparities as well, where we can just point to this, this sort of unseen force that we call systemic racism or patriarchy. And it's, it's sort of just a conversation ender because it's it's hard to point to and it's you know it's kind of like this unfalsifiable thing. I do think a lot of the sex and gender stuff is 
I think it's related to these ideas of patriarchy, but I really think a lot of it is more with like anti-bullying to some degree. Like okay. they would say a lot of, you know, gender non-conforming people are, are bullied. And that's just a very, it's, that's very true. You know, like people who boys who grow up and they're not really masculine, they'll get teased. Um, they'll call them, you know, I'm, I remember a lot of friends I, when I was growing up, if they weren't like maximally masculine, they would be called gay or yeah. the F word. And, you know, same thing for, for girls who are growing up who are more masculine, you know, they get teased and things like that. And so a lot of this was anti-bullying came in, in to try to, like, deal with that and try to treat, treat people as individuals, saying that you know, just because you're not a masculine boy or a guy doesn't mean you're not really a man. Same thing for, for women and girls. And I think a lot of the sort of the trans stuff that's going on right, uh, right now is sort of an extreme version of this anti-bullying but it's really just sort of reified these stereotypes because it's now saying that like it's defining being a man or a boy with masculinity and being a girl and a woman with femininity. So it's sort of like fused these this, these connections between girl and feminine and boy and masculine and things like that. It's really just gone to an extreme in, in that situation. So I, I do see a very a big difference between sort of the patriarchy narrative that we have and then a lot of the sex and and gender debates that we are having in society about, you know, what a woman is or, or, or what have you. Um, I think there's some crossover, but I, I do think they're kind of distinct. That's fair. Not to be a reductionist, but like, what is a take, if you can think of one off the top of your head, that you've put out, that you've seen, like, create the most friction for people or, like, create the most pushback? If there is one that you can think of, take that you've posted of, about of, or written ideas. About. Yeah, oh. just like if there's a snippet yeah. or a certain article or something that surprised you where you're like, geez, are we like pushing back that hard over this? Did I like drop a nuclear bomb or something or, you know, that kind of I thing? I mean, strange enough, it's it's really just like the claim that there's only two sexes and the sex is binary. Like that's that's what I get the most pushback and get called the most names for, which to me is really interesting because as like a biologist, it, to me, it's the most defensible position I can, it's the most easily defended position I can, I can possibly imagine. And it's the most shocking thing that I, that I see society denying at like a massive scale. Um, yeah, oddly enough, that's, that's the one that gets the most, it's like the biggest third rail where I get a lot of people who are, who talk a lot about racial stuff. Though, like there's people who talk about like the race IQ thing that I don't even go okay. into, I don't even know anything about like the IQ literature, but to me, that's just like white hot, super volatile, like, wow. <laughs> but then they'll sure. message me and they'll be like, I don't even want to talk about the, the gender stuff. And I was like, you're, but you're the <laughs> race IQ guy. And they don't want to talk about like, there's only two sexes because they see like what happens to those people who push back <laughs> on that. I don't, know, I don't know what it is. I think it's because like the sex and gender stuff, it's like, it's it's so far into the emperor's new clothes type thing where they have to be so venomous to push back against people like me saying there's two sexes because it's so indefensible in logical ways that they have to use all these other ways to like silence people because they can't do, think, do it on open stage. Do you think if people perceive marginalization or maybe if there even is some real marginalization that the that the idea of the binary puts people in some kind of fear that makes them reactionary or. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a really bizarre thing with the whole gender debate. Cause it, it's, it's this infusion of like this queer theory that that's really messing things up. I'm not even sure like what they're thinking when they're trying to do this. Cause I don't, I don't think a lot of the people who are professing this have like a nuanced understanding of like queer theory they probably wouldn't even be able to like know that they're doing it it's just sort of like they get into these patterns of of thinking and behavior on these debates but they're doing it without knowing that they're what they're sort of arguing from um yeah i mean i i it's hard for me to like think of it as anything else but like you know they, they need to have this this cause that they're fighting for i mean i i do think there's a lot of truth to this idea that we had like these lgbt movements where you know, gay rights was the biggest thing. It was, you know, we need to get, we need to get gay marriage needs to be pushed through. And that was the cause I was completely for. 
Um, and the ACLU was just a going hard on that human rights campaign, going hard on gay marriage. I was all for it. Uh, and then they, they got it. They got, you know, gay marriage is legal federally. And then they have all these big organizations that have all this funding coming in. And then all of a sudden they achieved what they're there to achieve. And so now what do they do? Like they, <laughs> they, they've achieved their goal or the biggest one they've been fighting for decades. And they can't just, you know, they're not just going to shutter their doors and turn the lights off and everyone go home now. We've, we've done it. They really have to just like take all this money that was for this one cause that like everyone was behind and they funnel these billions of dollars into these like super niche things like gender ideology that apply to like 0.5% of the population. And everyone is now scrambling to keep up because all of a sudden there's this billion dollar industry that is just creating all of this material um, that's fused with an ideology. Whereas, you know, gay marriage didn't, didn't have like, a, there was no ideological component. It's just like, you know, just understand that I'm, my love for a same sex person is as equal as yours for the opposite sex. And like people can, you know, they might not feel it personally, but they can sort of understand that like, oh, okay, like you're just, you're attracted to somebody else. No ideological sure. component, but now we have all this money fueling an ideology uh, that is very reality denying. It's, based in like this whole like power structures, power dynamics, queer theory that's being applied. And we don't know, it's it's just like this alien ship has landed. We don't know how to deal with it because it's it's so out there, but it's so well funded and organized. Um and they're all in this complete lockstep. I mean they have all the 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 guidelines, they send all the educational, you know, all the schools, all the corporations are getting these certain things now. The DEI stuff is there, the pronouns, all that stuff. It just has taken everyone by storm. Um, so I don't even think people know why they're doing it, but I, I think it's just has so much momentum and people are equating this new thing with sort of the rainbow flag of old that everyone got behind and no, everyone's afraid to criticize this new thing because they're still waving those same rainbow flags and it's, you know, they, they don't want to be branded as like the anti rainbow people because those have been, those are the bad guys. Like, and they were the bad guys, uh, <laughs> but people haven't really caught up, I think, to, how the narrative has really, really just changed in a fundamental way. Well, and if we talk about some of the, like, again, I'm open to people finding new ways to express themselves sexually. Like I'm not in the way oh, yeah. of that. I understand how that is still destabilizing to societies, especially if it affects birth rate. And then also structurally, uh, there are a lot of conservative governments or conservative societies that have no interest in teaching people or opening people up to sexual practices that move outside of this idea of the normal that queer theory spends a lot of time challenging. But do you think like, like some of the negative consequences of denying reality around biological sex is that we now are having conversations about people under the age of 18, like undergoing transformations or actual procedures that in some ways are irreversible in this kind of idea that they have that their gender is completely fluid and then they can get a surgery to change things like do you think that's where it gets dangerous or where do you start to draw the line yeah i, I think you hit it with like the you know from my perspective it was always like we can talk about the frequency of individuals who have certain like intersex conditions or people who are homosexual and things like that. Like we can describe reality of how it is and not give it sort of a moral uh, valence to it. It doesn't need to be like, this isn't wrong and it's not right. It's just, here's the frequency. But I've had people tell me because, you know, they would tell me something like, oh, did you know intersex people are 2% of the population? It's just as common as red hair. Um, and that's just not, this is not true. It's, it's actually a hundred times less than that. It's, it's 0.02% of the population. And then people have then responded to me saying that me accurately describing the frequency of intersex people is erasing their existence. I'm denying their existence. And I was like, I didn't deny their, I literally gave them a frequency. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying like, that's, it's just a wrong statistic. Like, yeah, we should accommodate these people in society as much as they can. Like, there's no problem there, whether it's 2%, whether it's 1%, whether it's 50%, like it just, I'm just describing reality the way it is. Um, you know, I think that there's the same thing. So one thing that's happening is people are taking like these exceptions 
and they're trying to sort of make them the rule in a way and trying to just sort of make it so it, it's it's past destigmatizing them but it's like promoting and glorifying them in a way like i'm all for destigmatizing like mental health issues and destigmatizing homosexuality or people who want to have polyamorous relationships like i don't care it's whatever people want to do on an individual basis but then like promoting them and like these these is like these moral values or explaining people who don't want to do it as being inherently oppressive or marriage is a is a sexist relationship and it's oppressive towards women or something like that like it's just I think that just goes too far. Like people can do what they want to do. Um, I think that a lot of the stuff, a lot of what queer theory does and what you mentioned about sort of blurring the age boundary too, that's really concerning to me. We have this, these increasing narratives that the children are sort of like these little philosophers all of a sudden where like they know who they are better than anyone. And I think a lot of this probably comes from like this, blank slate mentality where they think people you know they're they're born sort of like pure and unadulterated and then they're socialized into these toxic ways of thinking and so they think that kids are sort of like these these monks almost that they're just like these reservoirs of wisdom because they're not they're less influenced by social norms and things like that sure and I, think, I just think it's completely insane like i know when i was a kid you know when i was 10 years old like I thought I was like a Ninja Turtle. Like there's, I, I was, there's just no possible way that I was like this little philosopher King when I was a kid. Sure. And to think that, you know, I think you're maybe touching on some of the, you know, the, the gender affirming surgeries and things that we're doing for kids who are thinking they're born in the wrong body and all this stuff. I think it's just gone off the rails with a lot of this, this type of gender ideology, because we're telling kids, you know, we're basically equating being gender nonconforming with having a, um, disparity between your sex and your gender identity, which is yeah. being conflated with being transgender, which is confusing kids to think that because they're a masculine girl or a feminine boy, that they're trans. And then this is like a medical apparatus that's attached to that saying that, oh, we can, we can sort of correct this mismatch between the way your body looks and your sex characteristics and the way your brain is. When I, when I hear that, cause that's what's, that's what people are saying. To me, this is just like the opposite, or it's conversion therapy just turned on its head. Like, we had conversion therapy where we would see, like, a male who would be gender nonconforming and they're more likely to be gay. We'd say, you know, there's something wrong with you. Like, why are you, you're a male, you should be attracted to, to females. And then we would do the conversion therapy and try to shock their body into having their mind realign with their body. And now with the whole gender identity stuff and the, the affirm, gender affirming therapy, we're really saying that, you know, we're changing their bodies now to match their minds. And to me, it's just like, we need to back up and just let masculine girls be masculine girls and feminine boys be feminine boys and not redefine what it means to be a boy and a girl based on these stereotypes because it's causing so much confusion to these kids. And then, as I mentioned, it has that medical component that comes in where, you know, they're given puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones and all this stuff at increasingly young ages. And it's, I just think it's horrific what's going on with a lot of the, the gender surgeries and things like that. Well, in the way that uh, Americans think about sex is already fucked up, right? The fact that we like talk about sex education where it either has to be prescribed by the church or it has to be about safe sex. And the fact, I mean, such a primitive argument. And a, a lot of us, uh, especially if you grew up in like Christian conservative uh, parts of America, you have fucked up uh, beliefs and understanding of sex anyway, like truly fucked up beliefs. Yeah. So a lot of us are still trying to even learn, like in our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. I mean, depending on how much somebody would want to study, I'm sure you could actually learn more about sex as a kind of life practice, like actually learn more, understand more about yourself as an individual and so forth. But I don't think that's something that should happen like in K through 12 and then uh, I don't know if the university uh, should try to tell people like you're saying what's right and wrong. I think it's OK to like like I think, you know, queer theory, some of the critical theories, the critical race studies. Like I think, again, I could find ways to take those models and apply them in a practical and meaningful way to get some kind of like new understanding or 
new shape of interpretation. I don't see a problem with that. But I think what you're saying, the issue is that we're like reacting in a way well, where like if we were an anti-gay society, for example, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, for example, right? Not trying to pull all of history out, but you know, I, my parents were born in that era. I'm sure yours were. If we were anti-gay at that point, now we're, we're not like pro-gay. We're like pro, you need to redefine your whole sexual identity. And we're going to teach you how to do that as a child uh, or as a mm -hmm. student in a university. And if you disagree with these beliefs or the way that we've interpreted these uh, queer theory and so forth, then you are a bigot and you are not allowed to participate in the discourse. That's what I'm hearing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, it's all about like destigmatizing things without promoting or celebrating things. Like I just, I mean, I, I keep going back to sort of the individual level of analysis here where it's, you know, let a boy be feminine, let a girl be masculine. This doesn't change the fact that they're a boy or a girl. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, <laughs> I just think we, we need to be teaching people to be accepting of a broad range of, of human behavior and uh, individual, you know, the way individuals can differ in, in sort of like an infinite number of ways. Um, you know, when, the, when things are toxic, I mean, call out actual toxic types of behavior and abuse and things like that. But there's just so much range of human behavior that doesn't fall into that. That just, it's just individual preferences. And to me, that's just fine. That's like a, the beauty of human humanity is like the diversity. I mean, I do think there's a lot of truth to like diversity is our strength type stuff, you know, and <laughs> the thing I keep coming back to is like, there's so many nuggets of truth and like all of the ideas that I tend to push back on really hard because sure. they're not forwarding like their, their mutt, like they have, they're, they're out in the, the whole Bailey talking about like, well, for instance, for like queer theory, I think it can be useful in certain areas to sort of critique ideas and find the holes in them and say like, what, what are male and female, you know, what, how do we classify an intersex person who has gonads that are both, you know, testes and ovaries? Like these are interesting questions, but then to just say like, because we can find one exception, therefore the entire model of reality is completely arbitrary. Like that's just, that's just crazy town. Like we can't just throw away everything we know uh, because you can find one exception to a rule in many ways, a lot of these exceptions actually like the, the fact that you can point to like the one individual who's like straddling that line is evidence that you know exactly where that line is. And that the fact that there is a line there in the first place, otherwise you wouldn't know to point at the person who's got, you know, ovaries and testes and ambiguous genitalia or something like that. Like, uh, in a way, the fact that they can point to those really shows the validity of these two categories. Um, otherwise they wouldn't know, they wouldn't be able to point to the line. Uh, yeah, it, it just, it's just all these ideas just sort of get drawn out to the extreme polar, you know, the, the extreme end of the argument where a lot of the stuff, you know, not all of it, but a lot of it, there is a lot of nuance into it. Um, I don't think sex is one of those. I think, you know, we can say that there are two sexes and sex is a binary, but, uh, very many other things about human humans is incredibly complex and nuanced and, um, we can't sort of turn into these two, you know, black and white boxes. Sure. And, and I think really to the overall theme of our conversation, cause we're going to wrap up, even though there's so many more things that we could talk about, oh, but, yeah, yeah. but I think the overall theme to be honest with you is tolerance. So like, I feel like, the, and then maybe it's just interpretations of how to build tolerance into these discussions on, uh, sex and gender. And then we can't, box people out for their viewpoint. That's what people who feel they are being discriminated against or marginalized uh, wouldn't want to happen to them. And, and then there are still some practical benefits to, uh, you know, managing towards the averages but then, you know, trying to find ways to open doors for people who are on the outer edges. And I think, again, that mm -hmm. comes from being more tolerant. And then there are people that can't be open about sexual thoughts, practices, or beliefs. Either they have like serious religious ties and it just doesn't work like that religiously or uh, like, like you very 
strong academic scientific ties or like there are fields that people must understand where you can't be there are certain axioms of truth that have to exist otherwise the discipline has no validity and like you said you can still prove that there is a binary sexually so it's not it's not like you're like forcing people to believe that you're just saying here is the data if people want to open the gender element up and move into the like the social construction the deconstruction i love that in the poetry the art the music and i think that um there's benefits to exploring those ideas but i think at the end of the day uh you should be able to uh provide your perspective and it it it, sh- it shouldn't be met with uh the intolerance that i see on social media and, and that, that was another reason why i wanted to host you and why i'm going to post this on twitter and some other platforms substack uh is because i want people to see that you're a legitimate normal human being and then you have views that you're willing to substantiate me and you don't have to agree on anything but we can still have the conversation and uh, provide some knowledge to some other people listening mm-hmm. yeah i'd like to add one more thing to that thought because a lot of people a lot of pushback i get is by people thinking that like me saying that there's two sexes or something that that is somehow this it's impeding justice in certain ways, but really I don't think you can have like a a true, you can't have like true justice unless you really first value what's true in any, any situation here. Um, Because it's either true or false that someone's being oppressed on the basis of some certain trait. And so, you know, if we're going to talk about sort of different groups and how they're interacting with each other, you need to be able to talk about the base reality, you know, of is biological sex, is this a real thing or is it a social construct? Well, I think it's a real thing. And I think that really matters, especially because, you know, this people see this as being in conflict with, with something like tolerance to like, say, trans women competing in female sports, something like that. And to me, it's just like, well, no, we need to focus on what's true. And what's true is that there's sex differences between males and females. It's also true that a trans woman is a male, and so we get into the situation where we have these conflicting rights where they would say that there's not a conflict because trans women are women, but, you know, trans women also are not female. And so we need to be able to make these accurate, you know, claims about reality to make sure that we have justice for people who are female to right to have their own protected categories and their own spaces. Um, but I think that there should be accommodations made for trans women who want to play sports i don't think they should be able to play in female sports but you know they should be able to play in a a different league or maybe make the male league an open league or things like that but really like where i where i come from like i'm not trying to keep people down (laughs) i'm not trying to say that you know i don't think reality is 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 in your way of of social justice i think you need reality first in order to to really achieve justice in any meaningful sense so that's what i'm trying to do i'm just trying to keep keep the the flags in the environment where they are and the you know just some something that's going to be ground all the conversations because it can't just be everyone identifying in certain ways and getting what they want because it's just a it's just a complete free-for-all <laughs> and it's impossible to manage and that's kind of what we're what we're dealing with yeah, and I'm sure the leftists heard all of the microaggressions that have been in the last 10 minutes of our conversation. <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, I'm sure. Which, again, I get the idea of microaggressions and, like, these deep like, conflict identities. Like, even in my therapy sessions, I'm working through, like, my own identity and conflicts that I have and the instability that that creates for me internally. Uh, so I understand some of these uh, conflicts, but uh not everything is a microaggression maybe it's just mm-hmm. your opinion and my opinion so i also wanted to put that on the table colin i when i post um the Substack, i'm gonna include some of your writing uh some of your uh tweets some things that you're knowledgeable on some things that i like about what you do uh but would you mind like just kind of sharing with people like the best places to find your content or to find you online yeah, so I'm I'm pretty active on Twitter. <laughs> so my handle is 
uh, at swipe right and right is w r i g h t um i have a substack called realities last stand and that's where i publish a lot of stuff on the sex and gender debate mostly it's not exclusively to that but it's like 90% dealing with that whole debate you know a lot of stuff from philosophers of biology there's some feminists who post things on there uh, detransitioner stories, you know, just all, all kinds of stuff in the sex and gender debate you might want to read upon. Um, all the articles are free there, you know, but you can still subscribe uh, if you want to. And uh, that's that's mostly it. I mean, I have some, if you want to get a good idea of a lot of my writing, I guess start with my Substack. There's a few pieces, I guess, in the Wall Street Journal that kind of outline my main thoughts. You know, it's op-ed format, so they're kind of short, but it's it's a good place to go to get like the the thrust of my my position on most <laughs> most things that I talk about. Yeah, your your Substack um, has tons of engagement and looks very informative. And uh, I, I haven't read it, but I'm going to. And then uh, any like talks that you're doing, or any in person stuff coming up, or anything else that you're yeah, kind of thinking be, about. I'm going to Boston for this Parents Unite conference. So I'll be giving a talk there about sort of sex and gender. Um, you know, I'm trying to get some more, more things going on about, you know, in-person, uh, events and things like that, where I engaging with people in real conversations with people who might even just completely disagree with me. I'm really trying to facilitate those, but it's really hard to get, to get people to go on stage, <laughs> uh, to, to talk about these things. But sure. I really want to make that a, make a point to do that, especially because, we all had that excuse when COVID was a thing because we all couldn't hang out in person, but now we can. So uh, I want to do more of those type of events in person for sure. There should be, I think I have like a trigonometry interview coming out in the next week or so. Okay. So keep your eyes for that one. Um, but yeah, it's, it's about all I've got going on right now. Sweet. Any, any last words? Ooh, I think, I think we covered most of it. <laughs> yeah. I think we're good. Cool. Well, I, I appreciate you for coming on, Colin. And again, I, I think your perspective is important. I think it's well-informed. I think it's thoughtful. I think that you put a lot of effort into communicating what it is that you're trying to communicate, even though it seems like it is going against the grain of certain parts of ac ac the academy, if you will, society, certain kinds of thinking. But I, I think it is an important contribution to the discussion of sex and gender. So I yeah, appreciate you. you for coming I appreciate on. it. And, uh, yeah. And uh, I, I could be wrong about everything that I'm saying. So, but I'm yeah. willing to have the conversation. So let's just keep doing it. 100%. Cool. Thanks, Colin. <laughs> hey, thank you. I appreciate it.